Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Basila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Mark Emanation about his experience of being uh, Representative Tonko's guest for President Biden's State of the State. Then Willie Terry asks Brother X about who he is and his authority on issues of Black history and culture. Later on, Moses Nagel brings us excerpts from the presentation by Canyon Ryan from United Tenants to the Albany Common Council about the need for affordable housing. After that, Elizabeth Press reports on how the resident assistants at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute are working to unionize. Finally, Bria Barthel brings us information about a local center collecting critical donations for the people displaced by Monday's tragic earthquake in Turkey and Syria. But first, here are the headlines. State Senate Republicans are suing their Democratic colleagues in an effort to force a vote by the full Senate on the nomination of centrist Judge Hector LaSalle after he got voted down by the body's Judiciary Committee weeks ago. Governor Hochul had threatened a similar lawsuit. Among the issues judges will have to address is the ability of the courts to determine how another branch of government conducts its internal operations under the theory of separation of powers. State Attorney General Letitia James will attempt to get a murder charge reinstated against a state trooper accused of killing an 11-year-old girl during a high-speed chase on the state thruway. The lower court did allow a manslaughter charge to proceed, but disarmed the murder charge on the account that the trooper did not display a, quote, depraved indifference to human life, end quote. The Times Union reports that a federal judge in Syracuse has cleared four Troy police officers of excessive force charges in the arrest of Lamont Lee outside a Congress Street bar in 2018. It was the second time the officers won a trial. In the first case, the judge ruled that the officer's attorney had repeatedly made improper comments to the jurors. While the Saratoga City Council was set to name its members of the Civilian Review Board, Mayor Ron Kim adjourned the meeting after Black Lives Matter leader Chandler Hicklebottom accused the council of not doing what they promised when elected. After adjourning, the city council promised to host a special public meeting with the leaders of the Black Lives Matter Saratoga. A major issue is the selection of a new police chief, with all three of the internal candidates being opposed by BLM Saratoga, with one of them having been involved in the case of Daryl Mount, who died after a police chase. Saratoga Springs Public Safety Commissioner James Montenegro however, said that he is reevaluating whether he will attend. Tuesday's meeting came after Saratoga Black Lives Matter and uh, held a press conference January 31st in which they called out the city council for not moving forward with police reform initiatives and pledging to put pressure on officials. 
The Times Union reports that the Schenectady School District for years flouted its own rules in awarding contracts to at least three outside vendors. One firm, which received nearly $600,000, was owned by Damoni Farley, a school employee who now serves on the city council. The contracts apparently were never presented to the Board of Education for its approval. The Town of Bethlehem Planning Board has approved the 72-unit Selkirk Reserve Affordable Housing Project off Route 9W. The $20 million project, which has the pending for year, which has been pending for years, still needs town board approval. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. And now to our first story. Mark Emanation was a guest of Congress member Paul Tonko at President Biden's State of the Union address to Congress on February 7th. He discusses the experience with Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We're joined by Mark Emanation, who is executive director of the Capital District Area Labor Federation. And at this week's uh, State of the Union address um, in D.C. by President Biden, he was actually invited as the guest of uh, Congressman Paul Tonko, our local congressperson. So we wanted to ask uh, Mark to talk a little bit about, you know, why he was invited and what his experience was. So, Mark, uh, you know, why did Congressman Tonko uh, ask you to uh, to attend as his guest at the uh, State of the Union? Uh, well, first of all, Mark, thanks for having me. Um I love this radio station and listen to it. And I've been on it a bunch of times and it's doing an excellent job. Um, Congressman Tonko said, due to my advocacy work and uh, with the unions and union families, but specifically in the work that we've done in the last two and a half years, um, or more than that, um, our federation about five or six years ago uh, decided that it would really sort of try to help the regional food bank and the food pantries for the capital district and individual food pantries that we would give money but more importantly that we would um uh you know when they needed electricians we'd send electricians when they needed painters like the painters painted the oakwood um community center's food pantry uh the bricklayers helped put out um a handicap ramp down to another food pantry. And uh, there's other examples of that. So we did that. And then the communication workers were giving $5,000 at the beginning of the pandemic to the regional food bank. We learned uh, when we went there, they brought me with them. We learned um, that about those mass food distributions. And so we helped put together a coalition uh, in the early days of the pandemic that did hundreds and hundreds of those mass food distributions. We're still doing between three and five a month um, in places where there's not food pantries. We've done, so it was due to that, that I think uh, Congressman Tonko um, invited me for that kind of work that we did. And I was uh, honored and, you know, thrilled to be invited by him. Um, uh, my only disappointment is that my mother, uh, who's passed on wasn't here um 
because uh, I think she would have enjoyed it. In 1966, I was nine years old, and I took notes on Lyndon Johnson's State of the Union address. Probably the only nine-year-old in Waterbury doing that. Perhaps the only nine-year-old in the country doing that. And um, she always was a person that thought it was our duty to watch the State of uh, the Union. And I've tried to watch it every year since 1966, except um, it was very difficult uh, for the couple years that Trump was uh, doing them. Now, now, I will mention, you know, I, I worked for many years at the Hunger Action Network, and uh, uh, Paul Tonko was always a big supporter on hunger issues, both um, initially as a state assembly member uh, and, and then when he was in Congress. So as a, as a guest of a congressman, um, you, you don't get introduced by the, 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 by, by the president. Um, did you get a front row seat for this event? <laughs> I got, I'll send you the picture. I got the last seat in the house. My, uh, my bald head was like leaning up against the back in the, in the, in the, the balcony. I was the, like the last seat, a good seat. Um, and I sat with interesting, uh, people, a sheriff from, uh, a sheriff from South Dakota on one side and a sheriff from, uh, Virginia on the other side. We were on the Republican side of the, um, the whatever uh the room and um uh they didn't stand too much or applaud too much uh but they were both interesting human beings and um uh they appreciated when they asked me why i was there they appreciated that um you know why i was there they they were they were genuinely thinking that uh, working and poor or poor working people and elderly and folks like that need a much better um, shake in society. Uh, I, I just think um, uh, even even they thought that. Now, there were certainly quite a few points during the uh, president's speech, um, which is a very partisan um, difference in the response. As you mentioned, uh, the Republicans were not standing up and uh, clapping too much. And of course, we a couple times heard a couple of, you know, jeers about, about lying. But, you know, Overall, you know, once the cameras are off, you know, what was sort of the the assessment of the room about uh, the the message that the president delivered at the State of the Union? Well, so that's interesting you say that. So, you know, I was paying attention to all of that, and even on the Republican side of the room, there was people applauding and sometimes standing when the rest of them, you know, didn't on the Republican side. I think it was very hard for them. Um, you know, you, you say like the, that excellent jobs report, for instance, that came out where there's these jobs. Well, you know, it's hard to like boo when people got a job. Um, so there was some like there was some, you know, mixed response. Um, and other than that, the very vocal, you know, small group of people, um, you know, screaming. And I, it, uh, for the most part, it was a warmly received um, speech. And I think, um, you know, from the point of view of working people and uh, union folks, I think it was, um, I think it was pretty, pretty good. Uh, that, you know, were there things that the unions wanted to hear? Um, yes. That either heard or didn't hear, like just off the top of my head, I, I believe the state, the federal minimum wage is still <laughs> atrociously low. Um, and, and I realize with Congress being so divided, it's probably not going to be raised. But 
What about, you know, wages for working people? Well, so the president said several times in the thing, first of all, he talked about passing um, the PRO Act, which would allow it much easier to organize a union and to, you know, to not be harassed and, you know, not have the long time between when you get your card. Basically, if you signed a majority of cards, you'd have a union in your place. So he called on that and he called on raising wages for from from teachers to when he was talking about the PRO Act, that wages and benefits for working people in general needed to go up greatly and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, the minimum wage wasn't uh, mentioned specifically, and you're right, I think it's 29 states still has 725 an hour. And the federal tip minimum wage for people that are working in the, that that industry service industry, I think it's 215 an hour. So those are just out, you know, it's just outrageous. We need a minimum wage around $25 an hour, um, not 725. And uh, so, but I, I've sat through some of these things where there wasn't a single mention of unions, of working people, of all of that and the infrastructure and the broadness of what he was describing as infrastructure, um, you know, was was pretty good. Um, and I think that you know, in general, unions were very happy, and working people were very for, that are in unions were very happy about um, a lot of what was said uh, in in the speech. Now, did you have any opportunity to to talk to uh, Congressman Tonko about some of the things he was hoping? either in the State of the Union speech or his, you know, priorities for the coming session? Um, not much, because it's really sort of a whirlwind of them, um, you know, introducing you to people and then you, you know, you race out the door. But, um, and, 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 you know, what you said about uh, uh, Congressman Tonko around the Hunger Action Network is still true to this day. He's come to a whole bunch of the food giveaways that we've done. He's done a bunch of work on um, that with us. I, I, that was another thing I, you know, me being someone who is interested in that issue. Um, I, 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 I think, you know, you just can't go through life not having food um, at these mass food distributions that we're doing now, like the one we do in Lansingburg um, monthly, 70% of the people, maybe more that come are you know, elderly retired people. You can't just go and say, get a second or third job or go, you know, go out and get a better job. This is what this is what it is. And that's unacceptable for the richest country in the history of the world. So I know um, uh, I would have liked to hear heard something like that in the speech, too. Um, it's hard to say we're doing good when you know that 140 million Americans are, are barely surviving. And, well, um, we're, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. We've been talking with Mark Emanation, Executive Director of the Capital District Area Labor Federation, about his guest, Congressman Tonko, at the State of the Union. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Mark Emanation is a regular guest on this program, especially talking about labor issues. And on that, we headed, hand it over to Willie Terry for our labor segment. Bria? Yes, Brother X is a regular commentator on Black community history and issues in the Albany area. So Willie Terry reached out to him to discuss the killing of Tyree Nichols by the P Memphis police. And first, Willie started by asking for some background about Brother X. All right, uh, Brother X, uh, people want to know about you. You know, what give you the uh, right to talk about the different things in the Black community? 
Well, first I want to thank you for again having me uh, again and talking to your audience. It's important for a particular perspective to be uh, given to the masses so that that uh, political perspective is not lost on our people, and that's what I represent. Uh, I would call myself the, the chief uh, distributor of black nationalistic philosophy. And so I joined the conscious movement or and or the struggle uh, of subjugated peoples, most specifically black people, uh, on their quest for freedom in 2015. I joined the uh, local organizing committee, Justice Else, championed by Minister Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam. And a year of uh, just being a participant uh, of being a server of the people and just trying to help and learn and and communicate and unify uh, different groups together. Uh, after about a year and a half, I became uh, chief uh, chief component mm-hmm. of uh, the LLC, as we were called, mm-hmm. uh, lead organizer. Mm-hmm. So you and, grew you uh, grew up you grew up here in Albany. No, I, I was born here in Albany. Um, I moved around quite a bit. I was an athlete, as, as I said on previous shows, an athlete. It took me to Maryland and West Virginia, and then ultimately I came back here to Albany and yeah. just kind of like living life in, in obscurity, uh, more or less. Uh, and then again, like I, like I was saying, eventually joining the, the movement and struggle, and then uh, in that organizing time, servicing the people with uh, uh, different uh, showings of videos, of constant information, as our most I was to awaken the people about the things that were going on within the community. I started a podcast, go get your hand out my pocket. I had a Facebook page that regularly disseminated information uh, through the organizing uh, uh, efforts, uh, bringing a light, shedding a light on police brutality here in Albany, uh, which you know, which is where I'm from, LSR Williams shooting case, where he got shot in the back. Uh, also, three brothers who were beat up mercilessly uh, by police officers in Second Street. I want to say that was 2018. Mm-hmm. So those two cases kind of put us in the local limelight, if you want to say it, if you want to call it limelight, but just spotlight in terms of uh, an organization that wasn't connected to the status quo, uh, voicing a, its opinion of the masses. So uh, since then, I just try to do or uh, give political commentary to certain events that happen, whether it be locally or uh, nationally or internationally in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, just go back to, so you say you was an athlete. What kind of athlete were you? Uh, a basketball player. I'm six six for, for the listening audience. I'm six six, about two hundred twenty pounds. So mm-hmm. I played basketball for uh, my younger years, uh, up until a point where I couldn't play anymore. So from ten to twenty one, I played. I still played locally, but uh, when it mattered, you know, and I was relatively successful, if you want to call it that. Fifteen hundred points in two years. Uh, you played college years. basketball. Yes, uh, Shepherd University, Division mm-hmm. II school in West Virginia. And uh, I scored 1,000 points in two years mm-hmm. there and then played two years in the community college before then mm-hmm. and won several team awards. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so at what, at what point did, did you get political? Uh, 20, uh, 2015, um, uh, Mike Brown, the Mike Brown incident, kind of sparked something in me, and I started listening to more and more political commentary, the likes of Malcolm X, Brother Omar Johnson, Brother Tariq Sheed, Mr. Farrakhan, and uh, others, uh, trying to explain 
because I wanted to know why these things occurred. I had some sense of politics and uh, racial matters beforehand, but not uh, the command I have of it now. So uh, in the past, I, you know, you kind of look for answers and something sparks you. It's more uh, Chairman Fred Hampton called reactionary politics, where you ignore things uh, for a period of time, and then you have a level of outrage when something occurs. And that's what I had. And, and so I looked for information. And I was able to gather it through certain uh, individuals, and it kind of sparked action for me, as I, as I learned. Once you get the information, some level of action needs to be taken. And so, you know, that's what I did. Yeah, were your family political? No, nobody in the family was political. Um, my, my father uh, serviced the community as a deacon in a church, and so I, I guess you can call that politics, but not, again, not ever raging against the machine. Just, you know, servicing people in the church and outside the church and people in Albany, uh, he, he's beloved in Albany. And so, you know, by and large, I'm basically doing the same thing uh, as he did, uh, uh, save the uh, machining, <laughs> raging against the machine part. Uh-huh. Now you say you you was born, I'm sorry, I, I missed it. You was born in? In Albany, New York, yes. In, in Albany, New York, okay. And your parents, uh, were they from here, or they, or they migrated? Um, my father migrated from North Carolina. My mother was born here in Albany. Uh, and she has roots to Ohio. Uh, and so we, we, we by and large, have always been here. And, uh, you know, our roots come from North Carolina, South Carolina, Gullah Geechee, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty much our, uh, our lineage. Uh-huh. And did they ever, you know, uh, educate you about what happened during down south or in the south? No, you know, interestingly enough, you didn't talk. Uh, any, any, anything in regards to politics and or blackness came from my cousin. My cousin would ask me certain things and tell me certain things that I had not heard from anybody else. Just uh, for instance, uh, if you understand colorism uh, in the black community and where it came from. Uh, I had no idea about it. I did know that I got a lot of grief for being very dark skinned. I'm about the same complexion as a Wesley Snipes and or Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And so I took a lot of guff for that. I couldn't understand why, but my cousin would kind of explain that to me. She was very fair skinned. And uh, she always would say to me that you're, you know, you're gonna be very, very handsome. I mean, you know, obviously you can say that while I was a young boy, but that I would grow into this very likable individual physically. And it was music to my ears because I had not, not heard that before. So that was the little bits and drops of uh, uh, politicism that I had uh, given to me. But it was never from um, my mother, father, or grandparents. It was from my cousin. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you as Brother X right now. Uh, so yeah. did you, is that your uh, legal name now or are you just using uh, or, or what is your name? My name is slave uh, name. name is, <laughs> given name, yeah, there you go. Given, yeah, given name is uh, Mark Quinn Jennings. Okay, That's the gotcha. given name, and, and uh, the political name, as you know, is uh, Mister X. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you. Uh, I guess you're saying that you read a lot of stuff in terms of the politics while you was trying to find out why these things was happening. Uh, what are some of the, you know, uh, authors or what are some of the books that you read? Uh, the the keys, the color, uh, the color code, or the keys to the colors mm-hmm. uh, by Francis Cress Welsing. 
Right. Uh, dealing with systematic white supremacy. Right. Uh, two books issued by a brother, Omar Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a book about Dr. Khaled Muhammad. Uh, books of Ma- Malcolm X, obviously the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, Black Nationalism. Uh, a book that was uh, issued and publicized in 1967, basically about the nation of Islam. Um, let me see, scores of other books uh, that I've read. I just, uh, Amos Wilson's uh, book about the psychology of the black child. Um, a Nigger by Dick Gregory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, I don't remember off the top of my head. I know uh, what about some books outside of black authors? Uh, you know what? My really my literature back literature, literary background was basically I, I I like zombie genre for whatever reason so I read at least about fifteen to twenty books about the apocalypse really the zombie uh, uh, the zombie story is really you know, coming from Haiti and, and voodoo and the controlling of minds most especially black minds and so uh, a white man by the name of George Romero took that and made it so that now the they were they became the reanimated dead. Initially, they were just people who had a spell put on them, and they were zombified, and so they could be easily controlled, which is basically the state of black people today. But George Romero took it and, and made it about uh, reanimated dead bodies, right? That would consume the flesh, consume the consume the flesh of the living regularly, without insatiably, without stopping. And so, uh, the books I read were basically about that. That's the only things that really interested me. And I read it, uh, I read about 25 different books uh-huh. about them. And I was interested in the fact that how would people act in the apocalypse when the world was destroyed as we knew it? And that there was an enemy that you could not negotiate with and you could not take the court and you could not argue and or, and or fight. You had to kill, you had to eliminate or they would consume you. You know, I find that very intriguing. And so I, I would read different authors and obviously the, the, the premise would be the same. There was a protagonist, the antagonist, and then the zombie in the middle. So the the, the, the main protagonist or the main antagonist was never the zombie. The protagonist was a human, and the antagonist would be another human. I found that very interesting that you had a common enemy between the protagonist and the antagonist, but they couldn't get beyond the dislike for one another, and that they would fight each other with these zombies in between who didn't care what flag you wore, what religion you had, or whatever. If you were human and you bled, they were going to consume you. Mm-hmm. And so I just uh, I found that interesting. And the mo- most of the literature that I read were, you know, based upon that dynamic. Mm. Interesting. You just heard Brother X. Willie Terry reached out to discuss the killing of Tyree Nichols, which will be in part two. So tune in again and for our next show. Brother X has been previously on the show to speak about Malcolm X, and you can f- hear those on our website. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. We also stream online at mediasanctuary.org, or you can hear us in podcasts. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, 
You can support this program by telling a friend, joining our production team, or giving us financial support. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. At its Friday, at its February 6th meeting, the Albany Common Council held a public hearing on new rules proposed to require more affordable housing units and large developments in Albany. Canyon Ryan, the executive director of the United Tenants of Albany, spoke to the council on his group's work on the issue. My name is Canyon Ryan, and I am also the executive director of United Tenants of Albany. <clears throat> which is a 50-year-old City of Albany community-based organization whose mission statement reads, the mission of UTA is to protect tenants' rights for safe, decent, and affordable housing with special emphasis on those who have the greatest need or who experience the most severe problems and to promote the development and preservation of more affordable housing. That last part is what I'm here to speak about today. The average monthly income of a UTA-assisted tenant in 2022 was $1,683. The average household size was two people, and nearly half of the tenants who UTA conducted an intake with had a child in the household. The fair market rent for a two-bedroom in Albany is $1,207, meaning for both a parent and a child to have their own bedroom, the average household <clears throat> would be paying uh, more than 71% of their income on housing. Such luxuries, clearly, many families cannot afford. Therefore, many parents end up resorting to renting a one-bedroom, whose fair market rent is thankfully only 59% of their household income. With inflated food costs, inaccessible and scarce childcare, and a looming recession, even an affordable one-bedroom may soon be a luxury the average UTA tenant cannot afford. In the city of Albany, substandardness is a prerequisite for affordability. The most affordable apartment units are the ones that will kill you, whether via lead poisoning, environmentally induced asthma, toxic mold exposures, or due to the risks associated with pests, shoddy heat, poor indoor air quality, and other slum conditions. Thankfully tonight, you will have the opportunity to vote on an inclusionary zoning bill that will reduce some of this burden. This ordinance will mandate new affordable units are constructed for households under the 50% of the area median income. This tiered approach is more friendly to developers than I'd like to see, but it's a step toward keeping Albany a comfortable and accessible working class city where low-income tenants are afforded the new and equitable units, which until now have only been offered to those with enough money to afford them. Daily, UTA receives calls from renters in the city of Albany seeking affordable listings. Supply-side solutions, such as more market-rate apartments, are not going to generate more affordable units, not now, not in years. But today, you have the opportunity to act and ensure that working-class families have a right to the city. Thank you. Any questions? Thank you, Mr. President, and thank you, Kenyon, uh, for coming tonight and um, speaking out about this ordinance and um, sharing your experience with us. Um, you talked a little bit about some of the living conditions for um, low-income tenants in the city of Albany, but I, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely, and I think that actually this weekend has been a really clear example. Um, I don't know if any of you follow United Tenants on Instagram, but you might want to because I shared a video, uh, two videos actually, from separate tenants, but there was at least five calls over the weekend about this. Um, you know, slumlords don't take the prior, or the, the proper um, actions to ensure that pipes don't burst in the winter. And so many tenants over this weekend with the uh, very cold temperatures had pipes burst in their apartments, which resulted in them losing all of their belongings. Um, and that was even in the instance where the property manager was able to show up because with two of these tenants that happened in the middle of the night, and they lost all of their belongings, and their apartments were unsafe, unfit, which meant that they couldn't stay there anymore. Um, now, they can stay there, 
uh, and that's, that's against their, their, their best interests. But a lot of people don't want to go into shelters. All of the shelters were full this weekend, and the mission was the only other option. And if you tell a tenant to go to the mission, they tell you to go somewhere else. Um, not the mission, though. Uh, nobody wants to go to the mission. Um, on top of that, I mean, I've gotten uh, a lot of calls about several landlords, uh, I mean, including just, you know, pest issues. We want to talk about um, all the respiratory infections that come as a result of um, pest droppings and feces. Um, shoddy air quality is actually a huge issue, especially when you're talking about COVID-19. But Clearly, too, with affordability, a lot of parents and families are forced to double up as a result of that um, infectious disease spread. And um, that was the whole reason that in New York City they started demolishing slums and producing public housing. Now, we don't have the budget nor the political will to do that in the city, let alone the state, let alone the country. Um, but unfortunately, this is a reality that a lot of low-income tenants face, and it, it really negatively impacts their health and would let it really negatively impacts their developmental capacity, which resorts in all sorts of issues that the city has to deal with. Thank you. Um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, low-income tenants are income-based renters. Um, what does United Tenants do when someone comes to them saying, like, I need help finding a unit? Like, what are, what's, what's available to them at this point? Really nothing uh, is available to them. Um, there was a huge vacancy issue as a result of the eviction moratorium. On the one hand, it, that's good, right? Because people are staying in their units. But on the other hand, we live in an economy that's reliant on evictions to open up new units. And it just so happens that the affordable units are the ones that poor people can afford. And so they're the ones that are constantly being tossed around from slumlord to slumlord. Um, so when a tenant comes to us and says, I need help finding a new apartment, um, you know, options are really scarce. We rely on uh, DSS. We put together our own listings based on internet postings. And usually by the time we give this to tenants, all those units are already cleared, uh, meaning somebody already moved in or they took it off the market. And then credit scores usually kick the rest of the people out on top of really unfounded source of income expectations, like you have to have three times the rent, you have to have never been evicted. Um, oh, we don't take kids, which we don't have a fair housing officer in the city of Albany, so we really can't fight any of those issues as is. Um, so really, it's, it's luck of the draw. And then that you know, then relies on UTA being able to really quickly uh, turn around a case to get them in with first month's rent security, um, which is not easy to do. How many people would you say you have to, you have to um, send to like emergency shelter when people come to you with housing needs? So many, and, and that's the worst, right? Because like I said earlier, nobody wants to go to the mission and all of the shelters are full and the ones for women and children um, are closing. It's it's probably almost every tenant who gets evicted um, just because there's not really any support base for tenants. And if you don't have an open case with UTA, it's not like you can come in and say, I was evicted, where do I go? And then we say, oh, we have an apartment set up for you um, because you know we're a homelessness prevention organization and then all of the proper homeless assistance organizations are, are really stretched thin. Um, there's, there's no social support network and so what obviously would be the best case scenario is affordable rents abound and um, you know quality affordable rent rentals at that. And we don't have that at right now, do we? No. Thank you so much. Can you? Mr. Johnson. Thank you for your voice always. Um, one of the questions that I have, um, do you know what other areas are doing to um, support their um, residents like in different parts of the state or in other parts of United States, are, are there programming that um, they have? And could you um, talk about that a little bit, please? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I've been really interested in, and it really goes along with this conversation on zoning, is accessory dwelling units, um, or like uh, what, they, what they call like stepmother suites. Um, they're not, you know, as dignified as, as a proper house or an apartment, but they tend to be affordable and they tend to be amenable for a small family. And in Kingston, they have a, a new bill that it basically says, if you can develop it, you can have it. Um, and, and so ADUs tend to be, you know, decent quality new constructions that allow low-income tenants to at least have somewhere to stay that's not under a bridge. Um, supportive housing agencies do a lot of work. Um, I mean, Clinton Ave, for all of its complications, is one of the nicer complexes in the area that at least affords low-income tenants an option that isn't shelter, and a lot of the tenants there come out of um, you know, former, former homelessness. Um, and so, again, that's, a, that's an area where there's affordable units, but the quality's not great. And, and so tenants get kicked out when pipes burst, which happened over this weekend, or when their heat isn't operational. Um, I mean, I think that the city needs rent control. And my understanding is that we put money aside to do that in 2019, and then in 2021, we said we're gonna do this vacancy study. I'm ready to do it, because I think we really need to. Uh, there is a severe lacking of affordability in this city, and it's pushing a lot of people out, and when your only option is the suburbs and you don't have transportation, it's just not an option. Mr. Ballard. Thank you, Canyon, for being here. <clears throat> uh, and thank you for all the work you do on a day-to-day -day basis to help uh, so many of our vulnerable residents. Um, I guess my question is really a simple one. Um, with all your experiences of seeing, trying to find housing for, uh, you know, affordable housing for individuals you, you deal with, how many um, opportunities have you had to place them in any of the new existing buildings that have come up over the last six years? That's a great question. Um, unless it's explicitly an affordable unit, none. And, and that's why I really tried to lay on the point that affordability is basically tantamount to substandard. Uh, and so the idea that this city has the opportunity to uh, tell new developers you have to set something aside for low-income tenants. And this isn't like you know, the bottom of the barrel. We're talking 50% AMI and below, which is just a working-class family, um, to tell them that they have the same right to a rental as uh, somebody who's willing to pay you know, 1300 for a brand-new suite in, in downtown Albany, I think that that would be huge. Uh, and in fact, I would love to have something like that because I don't live in a nice apartment because I can't afford it. That was Canyon Ryan, Executive Director of United Tenants of Albany, speaking to the Albany Common Council on February 6th with council members asking questions. The council later passed by a unanimous vote, new requirements for additional affordable housing in large developments. Thanks to Moses Nagel for bringing us that story. Resident assistants, or RAs, are those students who work in the dorms and live there for free in exchange for their services. At Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the RAs recently announced that they are unionizing. Elizabeth Press, EP, spoke to Aidan Kaminsky about his experience as an RA and why they're organizing. Resident assistants at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute are working to form a union in partnership with Office and Professional Employees International Union Local 153. Today, we are joined by Aidan Kaminsky, uh, the union's communications chair. Aidan, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me what an RA or a resident assistant does at RPI or Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute? 
So uh, resident assistants on campus and off campus too are, they have a lot of different functions. We, for freshmen already such as myself, we're kind of responsible for creating an environment where students comfortably transition into the Rensselaer community. We do health and safety checks. So we go through rooms and make sure that they're up to code. We also will plan study events or we will put together ways for the students to socially interact. We also, of course, we're on duty. Uh, depending on where you are, you'll be on duty. So if a student gets locked out for whatever reason or is having an issue, you can help them out. We also solve roommate disputes and mediate conflicts in the dorms. And yeah, those are just some of the functions that we that we bring. And what made you decide to want to be an RA? I will, of course, having your housing expense covered is something that draws a lot of students in, including myself. Personally, though, I saw it as an opportunity to learn to take on some more responsibility. I, at least in in the hall that I live in, there's about 80, 85 people. Uh, however, I'm directly responsible for about um, a third of those students. So I thought it'd be uh, rewarding to take on responsibility for those students and make sure that they are you know, feeling safe and comfortable on campus. Great. And I'm curious, why did you all decide to organize and what are some of your demands or asks? So uh, talks of unionization uh, started last semester. We felt that um, unionizing, I guess for listeners, um, basically for uh, our unionization, we we have the belief and this is how most of the uh, unions operate is that by um, collectively bargaining, we can improve our working conditions, uh, which would of course positively impact our well-being as well as help residents out. So yeah, by unionizing, um, creating an, RP, uh, an RA union, we could establish firm boundaries and have a direct line of communication with the administration, which uh, some RAs, a part of the organizing committee, feel that you know there, there's some lack lacking there. And just a few of our demands, we want a fair compensation for residents. While we do have housing covered, there is a mandatory meal plan. There's really no exemption for that. You can appeal, but yeah, it's um, you're required to have a meal plan, which costs about $1,500 um, per semester at a minimum. And then meanwhile, we do have training that is, I mean, you're, we're talking 10 hour work days um, for about a week and a half, two weeks at the beginning of the semester, fall semester, and there's no compensation for that. And so point of emphasis is this lack of compensation that we that we demand an increase for. Um, and also uh, equal distribution of work among the different buildings. Uh, I only, again, I only have about 30 residents that I'm responsible for, but there are some RAs on campus that have more than double that amount. Yet training is the same and uh, compensation is the same. And so again, having an equal distribution of work among residents is something that we want. And also, again, as I mentioned before, having a a clear route of communication or frequent communication with uh, with the administration is something that we want, which would improve, um, again, the safety and well-being of the residents and ourselves. Great. And you all are ha have a few modes of communication out there. You have a petition that you're asking people to sign. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that, as well as this rally you're holding on Friday, February 10th at Beeman Park in Troy. 
Yeah. So the petition, you include your name or email and you can write a little message. And that petition is sent the when you sign the petition, the letter is sent to the president of RPI, Martin Schmidt. It's also sent to two administrators of part of the Office of Student Living and Learning, including John Lawler and Travis Apgar. And it's essentially just showing, you know, the amount of support that uh, RAs have on campus, um, both from the broader Rensselaer community, other unions that are being formed, you know, at different schools that are showing solidarity, friends and family members. It's for anyone to sign. And going along with that, um, along with trying to put push out this petition. Uh, we're also having a rally tomorrow at 1230 at Beeman Park, pretty close to campus. We plan on joining there and marching to campus to show support. Just one little added question. Are there people speaking tomorrow or is it just a, a march? Yeah, we're going to have speakers, um, both RAs sharing their own experiences. And I think we're also going to have some speakers from the Troy area on the importance of unionizing. Um, as far as I know. So yeah, we're going to have different voices being heard. It's going to be a, it's going to be a really productive uh, uh, rally. And so, yeah, everyone would benefit from this union. RAs have a really important role in, you know, kind of creating the environment at RPI. And so by improving our own working conditions and our well-being on campus, you know, it's really going to make the RPI community a lot stronger and I think closer. Um, and so the rally is a demonstration of that. And so is the petition. Great. And can you talk about where the union stands now and what are some next steps? You're waiting to see if RPI voluntarily recognizes the union. Is that correct? Yeah. So we we shared that we want a response by tomorrow at the end of the workday if they're going to voluntarily recognize our union. That rarely happens, so we are uh, expecting and preparing for the case where there is not voluntary recognition, and then we would we would request the NL, NLRB to um, the federal the federal government to come into campus and to hold a vote. And so after filing after filing the paperwork for the NLRB to come to campus and hold a vote, the the time in between is about six weeks. So if we are not voluntarily recognized tomorrow. We could expect like maybe late March to hold a vote, but again, that depends on a couple of factors. Um, also, we would have to negotiate with RPI when elections will be held. And there's so there's a lot of different factors there that could influence when exactly a vote could, would happen. But in the meantime, just uh, get, uh, gathering support from fellow, from residents, from students, from parents and uh Everyone in the Rensselaer community, that's something that we're really trying to focus on to show the administration that we're all you know, together in this effort and that we want this change. Excellent. And uh, what has the response been like so far, either from your supporters or from uh, administration? So the administration has yet to respond. They had mentioned, um, I think they put out a a, sh a short little response yesterday that they're basically working on a response. Um, but besides that, as far as I know, there hasn't been any communication. And right now, support is going well. We have almost a thousand signatures. I don't know if we've crossed that yet, but we're really close. There's about a 76% approval rating from RAs. So the overwhelming majority of, of RAs want this change and want to unionize. 
we've gotten support from different unions at at other schools and we've had a lot of encouragement and support from people both at Rensselaer and beyond so it's really exciting excellent and we are basically out of time Aiden but I just wanted to make sure I gave you the last word is there anything I didn't ask you about that you would like to add no no I think I've covered you know the the important the important notes well, you can find out more about the RPI RA union at linktree backslash RPI underscore RA underscore union online, where you'll get links to their petition, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Aiden, thanks for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. That was Aiden Kaminsky, a residence assistant at RPI, talking with Elizabeth Press. We will continue to follow this story of their effort to unionize as it develops. A recent earthquake displaced millions of uh, people in Turkey and Syria with the current death toll at around 20,000. On Thursday, Bria Barthel spoke with Zafer Ak about arrangements for collecting items in this area to be trucked to Turkish to the Turkish embassy and sent to Turkey through arrangements with airlines. He lists the current critical needs, especially medical supplies of all types, warm clothing, boots, tents, sleeping bags, and more. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Usually I talk about books or nonprofits in the area. This time I want to talk about an immediate pressing global need. We've all heard about the terrible earthquake in Turkey, and I'm here in Manans at a collection center where they are gathering clothing, medical supplies, and other goods to send to Turkey. My guest today is Zafer Ak. He usually runs two pizzerias, but he's taking three pizzerias. He's just corrected me. But he's taking time away from the pizzas to work with the collection and donation effort. Zafer, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, can you tell us, just, uh, just to start with a little bit of the scope of the earthquake and how it's devastated Turkey? I came from the earthquake site uh, many years ago, usually when this earthquake happens between one or two states. This is affecting over 10, 15 states. And so wide, so big, and it's just beyond any imagination. Roads are destroyed, airports are destroyed, hospitals are destroyed, and government, you know, in disasters, as a government, as an organization, as a non-profit organization, you can only, you know, you can only do so many. You can only go one or two state, three state. This is in so many sites. It's just, it's, 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 it's huge. And earlier when, when we were talking, you said that about half of the country is affected by this. It's close to half of the country is affected. It's, it's a, after World War I, this is the one of the biggest disaster we are, we are seeing. And with over 50,000 people dead, millions displaced, and with all of the infrastructure gone, it seems like collecting items and getting them there is a critical now. It is extremely critical, and there are a lot of volunteer organizations. As I was mentioning, there are three airline companies is volunteered. We are getting our list from our embassy daily, what needs, what is needed items urgently. So we are immediately packing. We have quite a few volunteers here, and working days and nights, and... We have a couple of truckers that volunteered, and we are getting them those needed items as soon as possible. We are running around t clock here. 
And I want to, before we get into the items needed, I want to assure our listeners, as you said, that the items actually do have a path for getting to Turkey. Can you tell us a little bit about what happens if we bring, when we bring items to your collection site? So one item comes in here. We are immediately packing them, and they'll be shipping to tonight and our truck will be leaving tomorrow and next week so from here we had to get it on time so those airliners embassy working together so it will be flying over to the where needed needed area nearby area and from there it's going to go to the those who is in needed and you said you're working closely with the Turkish embassy here in the United States. You said you're getting daily news from them about what's most needed? Daily list that they are sending us, and we are working around those lists. And, okay, now that we know that, indeed, the things we donate will do have a way to get there, yes. what is it you most need? The most needed item, winter boots. Uh, we need uh, sleeping bags, medical supply. Those are extremely important uh, to wheelchairs, push carts, and, and by push carts he means the walkers. Walkers, and you know, like sometimes you have those. I'm not sure what you call people. You walkers. can just walkers. Yeah, exactly. Okay, those are what we need. Any medical supply. There are lists that you know. Uh, I can can read it here. High priority items, tents. We need those uh, tents, sleeping bags, winter coats, we, uh, heat packs. EKJ machines, portable uh, ultrasound machine, portable propane heater, abdomen, uh, surgery, instruction sets, generators, sleeping bags, blankets, winter clothes, and woman hygiene items. Okay, so probably many of our listeners do not happen to have portable propane heaters or portable ultrasound machines, but certainly the other things they do. And you also mentioned a bit about the climate in Turkey. So it'd be good to emphasize that and why collecting here in the Northeast actually is good. It is and luckily uh, uh, for, for us luckily so we can have those uh, Turkey where this earthquake happened. It's cold, extremely cold, snowing there. It's minus degree just like upstate New York and and it's working out really well for us, you know, to collecting those items. If you were in Florida, where we where we find those winter boots, and you know, so those are the items that we are in priority in our list, and we are trying to get them as quickly as that we can. Okay, and again, it's um, the medical supplies, and that can be even things as simple as ice bags and splints and um, slings for the arms. And there are some other items on, on another list that you're looking at. It looks like the list that just came in. Tell us something about the other things you can use. Battery-powered wheelchair, regular wheelchair, inhaler, air mattress, battery-powered flashlights, battery-powered headlights, large, small, gas-powered cement breaker, walker, power bank, heat packs. Those are the additional items that are extremely important. And I assume that if you're saying battery-powered this is and battery-powered that, that's as you can use batteries also. Yes, that's, that is correct, yes. So as we think about earthquakes and buildings falling, you had made a point about the, the um, architecture and buildings approaches used in Turkey and why it was so devastated by the earthquake. Can you tell us, give us a sense for listeners who aren't familiar with it, what the architecture is like in Turkey and why everything collapsed? So in Turkey in general, is buildings are made from steel and 
cement and you're talking about 15 20 high story buildings when earthquake hits compared to wood you don't they don't have much moving so when this magnitude of earthquake happens those buildings just collapse and imagine 15 20 story high buildings you can almost walk up to it now it's just sandwiched in like a hamburger and people still in between those live waiting for help unfortunately the um the word i saw in the new york times is that they're sort of moving from rescue where they help to save people to recovery to where they find bodies but you said there was a hopeful sign of a baby that was found alive yes after 60 hours little babies a few days old few days old after 60 hours covered snow and it shocked everybody you know as a baby they eat every two three hours and this was still life and really give you know in this cold weather over there in here it's just warmness in our heart and so we've talked about all the different things you can use and that you're collecting them and sending them on a, on a truck down to the Turkish embassy to be shipped out to Turkey. Where do we bring donations and when can we bring donations? So you can bring your donations uh, between 12 and 5, 100 Broadway Menace, North Albany. So this anytime between 12 and 5, I think by next week we'll be stopping. So toward Friday, next Friday will be the end of the picking up time. Okay, I think the poster says 1 to 5 rather than 12 to 5. 1 to 5. Yeah, we, we, we usually get here 12, but just okay. to be safe, let's say 1 to 5. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you think would be helpful? Oh, tell us where 100 Broadway in Manans is. So 100 Broadway, if you take 780, everyone family with 787, just take the Manans exit and if behind the KFC, there is a huge Ward Community Wards building uh, right up the road uh, by cross street from Subway before Dunkin' Donuts, North Albany. You are so gearing that description to Americans telling us by KFC, Subway, and Dunkin' Donuts. It's in the large plaza in the far back of the plaza next to a dollar store. Uh, and it's just... City shopping plaza. It's Mid-City Shopping Plaza. And there's a big sign, you can't miss it, with red flag. It says Turkey Earthquake Donation Center here. You can't miss it. And again, that was Zafer Ak. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Zafer, thank you for everything you're doing, and I hope that this broadcast helps get you donations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, donations, again, can be dropped off at the Collection Center in the Mid-City Plaza at 100 Broadway in Menands, 1 to 5 p.m. every day through February 17th. And one correction, I misstated the number of deaths. It is 20,000, not 50,000, thank heavens. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host and engineer. We want to thank our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are my co-host, Bria Barthel, Mark Dunley for headlines on a segment, Willie Terry and Elizabeth Press, a.k.a. EP, also contributed segments. This is a collective effort. Thanks to everyone. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.